0: Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, President of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, it's great to have you with me again today for this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty as we continue this little mini-series that I think will last until into next week, on the transgender issue and the testimony that was heard in front of the Tennessee State House of Representatives the other week. You'll recall that last week I played for you two clips in support of transgender ideology, one from an ACLU lawyer and the other from a woman who testified as being a minister of Jesus Christ. And what I tried to do last week was begin laying the foundation for understanding the perfect logic of their testimony if two doctrines that underlie all of Christianity are not upheld or not understood or applied correctly, namely the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of creation ex nihilo. Now, last week, I focused on the doctrine of the Trinity. And I noted that as far back as the Athanasian Creed in the 5th or 6th century, it has been said that not to believe in the Trinity is to not be a Christian. However, I did note that one can come to faith without understanding the marvel, the glory, and the beauty of God resident in the doctrine of the Trinity, but to grow in the knowledge of God is to grow in our understanding of the Trinity, because it is in the revelation of the Father and the Son that we find in the words of Colossians 2, verses 2-3, through 3, hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. But to grow in the knowledge of the Trinity is not only to see its necessity as respects salvation or soteriology, but to see its necessary connection to the doctrine of creation. And that is what we're going to look at today as we finish laying the foundation for next week's program when we will come back to those two audio clips I played last week and analyze them in full. Now, I suspect there'll be a temptation among some of you to say, David, would you just get on with the analysis of the testimony offered by those two witnesses? And I understand that. I'm a type A personality, and those of you like me, you just want to know what the problem is and what the fix is, and you want to get on with it. But as I've come to grasp these two doctrines, I've come to see the interconnectedness of all of our problems, if I may be so bold as to say all, and that has helped me better understand what is going to be required of Christians going forward if we're to have a respect for the individual that is not in conflict with the community. By which I mean an integrated whole and not merely an aggregation of parts that just really form nothing and collectively mean nothing. That's the tension in our society between the individual and the community, between the individual and the state. And the Trinity is that model of unity that does not destroy differentiation and vice versa, which is the perfect segue into the doctrine of creation. Now for that I want to come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 10 and 11 a passage that we looked at during the building block series several months ago but it's time to revisit it so that we can apply it to the transgender issue particularly next week. Now let me throw this in before I go there to give you I hope some hope uh, some encouragement. The more I think about the issue of transgenderism and what is underneath it. I believe transgenderism is the apex. It's the crowning achievement, the logical conclusion to the lie Adam and Eve believed, that you can be like God. And so I I believe we're reaching the end of a fundamentally revolutionary period in Western history. And if Christians will come to grasp the height and the depth, and the width, and the breadth of these two doctrines, then I believe a counter-revolution, a reformation, will be forthcoming. And I'm bullish on God and on the glory and the power of the gospel to transform things. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil, not have the devil destroy his work. And in fact, we're told in Colossians 2.15 that on the cross He made a spectacle of the powers and authorities that are in this world. And I believe it's time that our faith be informed by that reality and that we live in light of that reality. But let me get back to this doctrine of creation. And the first thing that must be emphasized is the relation between the doctrine of the Trinity the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, to the doctrine of creation. So, as I said, we'll start now with 1 Corinthians three, ten through 11. And here's what it said. According to the grace of God which was given me as a wise master builder, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, and speaking in relation to the work that he's done and Apollos and Peter has done, he said, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. And then he speaks to that foundation and to the foundation that he tried to lay. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And I think I've said before, we often think of that as Christ Jesus is the foundation for our soteriology, but the passage of Scripture is not limited to that. In fact, it's talking about eschatology in the sense of building of moving forward, not a point-in-time-it's-over-and-done-with point. He's talking about building, and we see, or we will see, that Jesus Christ is the foundation for creation, cosmology. And again, I'll come back and say, cosmology determines your soteriology, and that determines your eschatology. Then we read something similar in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 through 17. There the apostle writes of Christ that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The word there implies a synthesis, a holding togetherness of all things. And we find out why this foundation for all things in Jesus Christ is so important in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12-15, through 15, which follow the ones I've just quoted a moment ago. The Apostle Paul writes, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. So what he's referring here to is that God has given various talents to different people and gifts, uh, some teachers, apostles, prophets, right, so on and so forth. So we build with different materials, as God has given to us each of our what we have. And he says, and what they build will become clear, for the day will declare it. He's talking about the day of final judgment, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he's built on it, endures, this refining on Judgment Day, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Now, before I move on, I want to just pose a couple of questions to you. How much of what you see being offered by Republicans and even by Christian policy and legal organizations would you say is dependent, or perhaps more pointedly, consciously and intentionally built upon a right understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and creation, and without which it would not make near as much sense to the non-Christian. I repeat the question. How much of what you see Republicans and even Christian policy and legal organizations would you say is dependent on, or perhaps more pointedly put, consciously and intentionally built upon a right understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity and creation Without which, it would not make near as much sense to the non-Christian. And ask this follow-up question. Is that perhaps what we're doing when we speak of transgenderism as strictly a mental illness? And if we're not doing that in our policy and legal work, if we're not resting it on those two doctrines, and if we're not in that sphere trying to restore the fundamental relevance of those two doctrines, then is it in any way distinctively Christian? Or could it just be done the same by the Heritage Foundation or or Americans for Prosperity or you know any other non-Christian policy group that's out there? And if it's not being done that way, then what will be the enduring effect of that work based on what the Apostle Paul just said? It will not endure until the day of judgment. It won't last because there's no gospel under it or in it. And only the word of God, the gospel of God, will endure forever. Anyway, let's examine what is being said by the Apostle Paul about the relationship between the Son of God, of Christ, to creation. And for that, I want to turn to Herman Bavink, in volume two of his Reformed Dogmatics entitled God and Creation. I'm going to give you the page numbers in case you happen to have that book or want to purchase that book. It's uh, you know, six hundred pages long and and I've been reading on it for some period of time and been able to connect dots between the various pages and chapters and that synthesize and pull them together, and that's what I'm gonna to try to do. Today, So on page 554, on the top of page 555, he writes this, God himself, the entire deity, is the archetype of man. Granted, it has frequently been taught that man has specifically been made in the image of the Son or of the incarnate Christ. But there's nothing in Scripture that supports this notion. Scripture repeatedly tells us that humankind Was made in the image of God, not that we've been modeled on Christ, but that He was made human in our likeness, and that we, having been conformed to the image of Christ, are now again become like God. It is therefore much better for us to say that the triune being, God, is the archetype of man. But, as Bavic notes on page 423, it cannot be denied that in Scripture, creation, which would, of course, include man, stands in a peculiar relation to the Son, one that deserves independent discussion, and that's what I want to focus on right now. On page 274, he writes, the Logos, which, of course, is the appellation given to Christ in John chapter 1, is the absolute revelation of God, for from all eternity, God communicated himself in all his fullness to him. And similarly, on page 420, he writes, By generation, from all eternity, the full image of God is communicated to the Son. Now, where might he get this idea? Well, it's found in Colossians 1.19, where Paul writes, For it pleased the Father that in him, referring to Christ, all the fullness should dwell. And then Bobic adds, this is on page 274 again, since God communicated himself to the Logos, the Logos could communicate himself to us. And again, where might he get this? Well, it's in Colossians 2, nine. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But we have to appreciate that this affirmation, if it's true, entails a denial of, of its opposite. And here, Bobic speaks as follows on page 420. If, in the absolute sense, God could not communicate himself to the Son, in other words, if not all the fullness of God could be communicated and exist in the Son, Colossians 1.19 we just referred to, then, says Bobic, he could be even less able in a relative sense, to communicate himself to his creature. Relative meaning communicating the fullness of God bodily and in creaturely form. Bavik sums up, if God were not triune, creation would not be possible. Now, if you want to understand that further, in a perhaps more simple way, the book, Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves, that I quoted from last week, is an excellent place to start. Now, before I move on to the relation of Christ to human beings in particular, see, I was speaking there in some ways about the communication of God to the Son and the Son to the rest of creation. I I would note this, which is found on page 309 in Bobbitt's book Because the Son is not created, as a work of God, which is, of course, how the acts of creation in Genesis 1 are described as works of God. Bavink said we shouldn't view generation of the Son as an actual work, a performance of the Father, but rather we should ascribe to the Father a generative nature, because He's eternally begotten. He's eternally generating the Son. And with that statement, we now know why a male is called a father and why a male could never be a woman or a mother. You know, that's what's beginning to happen with transgenderism, right? We're, we're finding tampons in the men's bathroom. We're, we're saying that, you know, don't deny that men can menstruate, right? Well, that, that's impossible if we understand the doctrine of the Trinity and the generative nature of the Father to the Son and the Son in the creation of Adam. Adam was called the Son of God in Luke, the genealogy found in chapter 3, verse 38. And, and Adam is, in a creaturely fashion, like his heavenly Father. He's generative in nature as well because it is out of his side. That the woman even comes, and of course uh, it is out of Adam that the pregnancy begins but but I think it's important to realize that Eve was taken out of the side of Adam, even as Christ's bride comes out of or flows from the fact of Christ's resurrected body. so now we also know why a woman can never be a father, but is constituted by nature a bride, for Adam, and in his generative act, a mother. Now, before I go back to creation and the relation of the Trinity to human beings, let me draw one further connection between speech and the words we used, in addition to the one I just made. On page 309, Bobic writes, The most striking analogy of divine generation is thought and speech. And Scripture itself suggests this when it calls the Son Logos. And now Bavak explains what he's talking about here. Just as the human mind objectivizes itself in speech, so God expresses his entire being in the Logos. So I have things in my head, and I objectivize them by speaking. And so the Father speaks the worlds into creation. He, he speaks things into creation. Let there be light, right? So, so God is expressing himself in the Logos, and the Logos is expressing himself in creation. And this is important, because one of the problems manifested by the transgender movement and one we'll look at next week, is that of ontology, which is the fancy word for what is the essence of a thing. That's what we're talking about when we say we don't know what a woman is. And my point here is that if we don't know the essence of a thing, we don't know what it really is. And therefore, we also don't know what it's for. But that's not a problem for the Christian. A Christian knows the essence of a thing is rooted and founded in the triune God who communicates to his creation its essence, meaning, and purpose. So when we know God as triune, we have sufficient knowledge of what things are to know what they are for. So when we see the Father is generative, I understand that when the man impregnates the woman. He is acting in a fatherly capacity, and that's what he is. In principle, he is to be a father. He would never be a mother. Okay? But in a way, I'm kind of getting into next week, and we'll come back to this. But, but let me say again what I just said here before I continue with creation and Adam. If we don't know what a thing is, we don't know what it is for. And Christians know what things are sufficiently because they're rooted in something objective and personal and knowable, the triune God, and therefore we can know what things are for. So now let me continue. With respect to Adam, Bavik writes this, it's found on page five sixty four and it's rather long, but it's good, and it's so let me repeat it all, although Adam was created after God's image, since he was from the earth earthy, those are the words we find in first Corinthians fifteen He was dependent on the earth, he after all needed food and drink, light and air day and night, hence did not yet have a glorified spiritual body on a level transcending all those needs his natural body had not yet fully become an instrument of the spirit as such adam by comparison to christ stood on a lower level adam was the first christ the second and the last again we're seeing the language here of first corinthians Chapter 15, Christ presupposed Adam and succeeds him. Adam is the lesser and inferior entity, Christ the greater and higher being. Hence, and here's the key point, Adam pointed to Christ already before the fall. He was the type of Christ, Romans five fourteen. Christ was the archetype of man, and Adam was the type. In Adam's creation, Christ was already in view. The natural came first, the spiritual second. Adam's condition, this is important, was provisional and temporary and could not remain as it was. It either had to pass on to a higher glory or to sin and death. And isn't that what we see in seeds and plants? They must pass on to a higher glory or they die, and that's exactly the kind of imagery Jesus uses in John 12, 24, and Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 15 with respect to the body, the resurrection, and glorification, and what our bodies will look like when they're glorified. So there, we see now The importance of the doctrine of the Trinity to the possibility of creation, and that Christ and the Godhead are the archetype for Adam. Adam is a type already pointing to the Christ who is to come. So I'll close with these two statements for today. One of them from Babak on page 407, where he writes, creation is the initial act and foundation of all divine revelation, very interesting, isn't it, because we so little as Christians point to what's created to help people think of who God is, and the others on page four twenty two in speaking of the Trinity and creation, he says. The two dogmas stand and fall together. So when these two doctrines fall or recede into the background, as they have done in recent decades and in the last century, and one's not going to stand without the other, we get transgenderism. And that's what we're going to look at next week. And I hope you'll join me for the next episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.